chapter 53, first six verses. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Word of God. When God sent Moses to set his people free in Egypt, he gave him an impressive arsenal. There were the things that Moses could do with his staff and his hand and a jar of water. He could do things like throw his staff down and it would turn into a snake. And then he could reach down and pick up that snake by its tail and it would turn back into a staff. I'd like to go on a mission and just walk into some powerful person's office and say, don't mess with me. What's this? He did it. He could stick his hand in his cloak and bring it out filled with leprosy. He could stick it back in again and it'd come out just as good as new. He could take a jar of water from the Nile and he could pour it out and it would be blood. In fact, when he did these things, he could call down great calamities, great plagues on Egypt. He could turn the Nile River into blood. There would, he could bring on boiling, swarming masses of frogs and gnats and flies, dead livestock, festering boils, thundering hail, ravenous locusts, terrifying darkness. He could do all that. But none of it worked. Really. I mean, they all had their purposes, and, and, and they did some specialized things, but when he had pulled every trick out of his hat, when he had performed every miracle, he had done every sign... Pharaoh was just as hard-hearted and as unyielding as he was in the beginning. And the people were still slaves after all that. And then God did something Moses could not possibly have anticipated. Because God gave Moses no hint of it when he sent him on this mission. But this one thing would, would be the decisive act. It would be the coup de grace. And I want you to listen to what Moses told the people God told him to tell them to do. 
Then Moses called for the leaders of Israel and said, Tell each of your families to slaughter the lamb they have set apart. Drain each lamb's blood into a basin. Then take a cluster of hyssop branches and dip it into the lamb's blood. Strike the hyssop against the top and sides of the doorframe, staining it with the blood. And remember, no one is allowed to leave the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through the land and strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit the destroyer to enter and strike down your firstborn. What a night it must have been. In thousands of places, thousands of lambs hammered on the skull. Their throats slit. Their blood drained. Thousands. And then a hyssop branch dipped into a basin and, the, and that blood put on the doorposts. And then through the dark hours of the morning, the, the wails and screams of Egyptians and the quietness over the Jewish community. The shedding of the blood of an innocent victim. That was God's way to set his people free. And after that night, a yearly festival, the Passover, was instituted to remember it. And not only yearly, but also daily, lambs and goats and bulls were to be sacrificed to atone for sin, the ultimate slavery. The priest would lay his hands on the head of this beast and signify by doing that that, that this beast was now identified with the people. And again, they would club the animal, they would cut its throat, they would drain its blood out, they would sprinkle it on the, the horns of the altar, they would cut it up, burn some of it on the altar, the rest outside the city gates. Daily. For centuries. If you could have visited Jerusalem in Jesus' day, one of the things that would impress us all, I think, would be the, the omnipresence smoke in the air, the smell of burnt flesh, uh, the, the sounds of animals being herded to the altar. This went on daily, every day. The hands of the clergy were the hands of butchers. Now, all of this can sound hopelessly arcane and alien to modern ears. It's also offensive, this constant shedding of blood, this butchery of innocent animals. Even for some non-believers, the religion of Jesus, or the little bit they know of it, seems to be a great improvement on the religion of Moses. I mean, uh, isn't the religion of Jesus about love and joy and peace and personal spirituality and, and doing unto others as you would have others do unto you? And yes, there was this messy thing about this cross, but that was, uh, well, that was a glitch. That was uh, a, an unhappy uh, coincidence to the real message of Jesus. And yet, from the perspective of Jesus, 
and the writers of the New Testament, all this blood, all this butchery, this sacrifice was a picture, a shadow of what was to be fulfilled in Christ. His death was not an avoidance of something. It was the fulfillment of it. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus for who He was, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus spoke of His own mission, He said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. At the Last Supper, He took the cup and He he poured it out and He said, This is the cup of the new covenant in My blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Paul wants to remind the Corinthians of the faith, he says, this is what you believed in, that Christ died for your sins. Peter, chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Peter. For you know it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed on to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb, without blemish and without spot. At the end of history, heaven will sing to the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. The great event of history, the great event of heaven, will be this thing called the marriage feast of, yes, the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb, foreshadowed in the deliverance in Egypt. Now, back in the early 70s, a couple of big-time musicals came out, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Do you think you're who they say you are? You know. And Godspell. Actually, I like Godspell better than Superstar, but uh, there was a good article that came out in the uh, San, Diego, San Diego Independent after Godspell played in town, written by a Jew, uh, one of my wife's professors, a professor of Russian, uh, a practicing Jew. And he, he entitled the article, Can Christianity Survive Godspell? I read the article and I was stunned that he understood Christianity better than many Christians. He said in Godspell, Jesus was well, kind of a hippie. You know, he, he said things that shook people up and he was very wise and, and he, he led us into freedom but, and, and, and he got killed because they, he just bugged folks. He was a radical. And Dr. Jonathan Seville, the Jew, said... No, the the Christian message is Jesus' death wasn't the consequence of his mission. It was the means. It was his modus operandi. It wasn't a glitch. He came to do this. Our faith, my friends, is inescapably bloody. At its heart, it's raw, it's not genteel, and it's not for the weak of stomach, spiritually. 
Jesus was not a Socrates who took hemlock with his friends, dying the death of a protester. He was not a, uh, was not a Buddha who, who uh, died in deep meditation on a mountaintop in the lotus position uh, and sort of went off. Jesus is a lamb slaughtered, a victim, bloodied and scourged and impaled on a Roman gibbet. Well, what does this slaughtered Passover lamb with its foreshadowing of Jesus, the bloodied lamb of God, tell us about the gospel? Three things. Number one, it emphasized the totality of sin. The gospel says that Christ died for our sins. And understanding the nature of sin is crucial to understanding the nature of the gospel. Sin is not some defective part of our personality. It's our total orientation to life. Sin, with a capital S, is us simply trying to be our own God. Living our life out of our own resources. Sins, small s, well, they're all the, the symptoms of that. All the side effects. We lie, we murder, we steal, we commit adultery, we gossip. Because we're sinners. Capital S. We're not sinners because we do sins. We do sins because we're sinners. It's the orientation of our life. It's, it's not some little piece of us that needs to get fixed. And the animal sacrifices said that about our condition. The lamb was killed, not groomed. Its life was taken. Its ears weren't clipped. Sin is total. The sacrifice must also be total. What could be more total than death? You know, sometimes I think we have a tendency to see Christianity as something that enhances us, that adds to the religious dimension of our lives. It's supposed to give us balance, uh, to round us out socially, intellectually, physically, and spiritually. Jesus was a good leader, a teacher. He stands for all that is noble and good and wholesome, and he helps us be what we can be. No. Because our sickness is total unto death, the cure is total unto death. He's not a helper. He's a savior. Because sin is total, salvation must also be total. George MacDonald, one of C.S. Lewis's mentors, said, when I invited Christ into my life, I wanted him to make repairs. Temper problem, a little lust over here. I did this and that. And, and it's kind of like some, I wanted, you know, it was sort of like a remodel. I wanted him to come in and, and fix the roof and then take care of the leaky faucet. And he came in, he made no repairs, not any repairs. He tore the house down and rebuilt it. And if you think you're following Jesus Christ and you've never experienced the radical, rebuilding of your life. You better think again about who you're following. 
And the sacrifice of this lamb, total oblation, pointed to the totality of sin. Secondly, the Passover lamb and all the animal sacrifices that were to follow dramatized the wrath of God. You know, I was sharing with the, the, my staff this morning about how different times in history, uh, different moments and cultures and things like there's certain parts of the gospel message that are just really hard to hear. We just, we just, it's just hard for us to get it through. And I think this is one of them for us. God's wrath. See, the, the sacrifices said that God was angry at sin. And that sin was such an affront to God that, that only death could satisfy him. There's a theological word that uh, is very nuanced and has so many different layers. And sometimes you don't get it in the, the newer translations because it's a hard word, but it's the word propitiation. And the word signifies that when the animal sacrifices were fulfilled in Christ, God's holy and righteous anger was propitiated. It was satisfied. I'm reading now from Romans chapter 3. For two chapters, Paul has been detailing the, the, the depth of human sin. And he says in verse 23 of chapter 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then here comes the gospel. But we have been justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Here's the grace. Here's what puts the amazing back into the word grace, is that God's anger now is satisfied in the shedding of His Son's blood, the Lamb, without blemish and without spot. How angry at sin is God? Go watch a sacrifice. Watch a creature be butchered. Well, look at the cross. How angry is God at sin? You know that song that says, you know, God showed us his wrath at Sodom and Gomorrah. He showed us his love at the cross. That's not really true. At the cross, we have the greatest display of God's wrath and his love. They go together there. And as each nail is pounded into Christ's flesh, we see how awful sin is and how angry God is at sin. P.T. Forsyth said this, one of my favorite theologians. He said, The blood of Christ stands not simply for the sting of sin on God, not simply for God's sorrow over sin, but God's wrath on sin. Maybe you're wondering, does God have a right to be angry? You know, we can be tempted to think that, that God, that the God who sent Christ to be crucified as a propitiation, is a, he's a rather peevish God. He's easily irritated. He has a short fuse. I mean, does he really have the right to be that mad about sin? Well, he has the right only if he's God, which is to say, only if he is love itself. 
only if he is the source of everything that is good and true, only if he is the one from whom everything we judge anything by is God. And if to reject God is to reject everything we know that is good and right, then he has a right to be angry because he's God. Dr. Billy Graham had preached the crusade on the East Coast and thousands of people came to faith in Christ. And he was asked, now is this revival? Are we seeing the church revitalized now and God's people kind of brought back together? And he said, you know, I don't think so yet. Why? He was asked. He says, when revival comes, when God's people become what they're supposed to be, they are struck by two things. Number one, they become overwhelmed with a sense of the holiness of God and they become deeply convinced of the sinfulness of sin. And the joy of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the church that is all it's supposed to be never gets there without those two things. God's holiness and the sinfulness of sin. Another theologian, Donald Blesch, puts it this way. The merely ethical Christian asks, I'm sick. How can I be made well? The biblical Christian asks, how can God's violated right be restored? The fear of God really is the beginning of wisdom. Well, this brings up the third thing taught by the sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ. The love of God. Okay, again, maybe you're thinking, okay, God has a right to be angry. But why should he pour it all out on his poor, innocent son? Why does Jesus have to get all that? Dorothy Sayers, the English writer, wrote a parody of popular misconceptions about Christianity, and this is one of them. In her parody, she took this point of view and put it this way. God wanted to damn everybody, but his vindictive sadism was sated by the crucifixion of his son, who was quite innocent and therefore a particularly attractive victim. Is that the way it is on the cross? That the father was mean, that the son was loving, that dad wanted to kill everybody, but his sweet Jesus son said, no, dad, put it on me. Was that the way it was? Well, Jesus laid that one to rest when he said, I and my father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Yes. When God sent his Son to die for our sins, he wasn't only putting our sins on him, he was taking them upon himself. Listen to these two great verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. And then this. And God made him, Christ, to be sin, that's what the priest said when he put his hands on the beast to be sacrificed. And God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, it's God's love. This is the great mystery of the Trinity, the Godhead, the one and three, the three and one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting as one. You know, I think we miss the meaning of sacrifice. We tend to think sacrifice is about death. God thinks sacrifice is about life. The release of life 
through death. The book of Leviticus said the life of the animal is in the blood. When the blood is spilled, the life is released. Or as Jesus put it, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it stays alone. But if it dies, it brings a harvest. Yes. The death, which is about the totality of sin, which is also about the wrath of God, but finally the death is about the release of life through the death. My stepfather is dying. That's a slow death. And he's dying because his blood can no longer nourish his body because of his liver. And when the blood gets bad, the mind goes, the body fails. It's, uh, it's slow. It's awful to watch. What he needs to live, but he can't get, is good blood. Good blood. And that's why Jesus said, this is my blood. Drink it in my memory. And whoever comes to me will never hunger or thirst. Well, I close with this. In Ernest Gordon's story of his imprisonment in a World War II death camp, he tells a, an unforgettable story of how one man's death released life for many others. You should read the book. It's called Through the Valley of the Kwai. The Kwai being a region in Southeast Asia that had been overrun by Emperor Hirohito's troops in the Second World War. It seems that every day the prisoners would go out and do their work and they'd come back and before dinner they would give all their shovels back to the guards and they would count the shovels to make sure there were exactly the number of shovels back that had gone out in the morning unless someone had stolen one to dig out and escape from the camp. And on this particular day, one shovel was missing. And so it seemed. I'm now reading from the book. The guards strode up and down before the prisoners, denouncing them for their wickedness, their stupidity, and most of all, their ingratitude to the emperor. Screaming in broken English, he demanded that the guilty one step forward to take his punishment. No one moved. The guard's rage reached new heights of violence. All die! All die! He shrieked. To show that he meant what he said, he pulled back the bolt, put the rifle to his shoulder, and looked down the sights, ready to fire at the first man he saw at the end of them. At that moment, one of the prisoners stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention, and said calmly, I did it. The guard unleashed all his whipped-up hatred. He kicked the hapless prisoner and beat him with his fists and still the prisoner stood rigidly at attention. The blood was streaming down his face, but he made no sound. His silence goaded the guard to an excess of rage. He seized his rifle by the barrel and lifted it high above his head, and with a final howl, he put the butt down on the skull of the prisoner, who sank limply to the ground and did not move. And although it was perfectly evident that he was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when exhausted. The men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body, shouldered their tools, and marched back to camp. When the tools were counted again at the guardhouse, no shovel was missing. 
Was his life lost? Or simply released for his friends? And if you can, would you look at that prisoner and hear these words again? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. But we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds. We are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we never grow weary of saying thank you. <laughs> 